trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join us for a little uh, indulgence in wrong think. My friend and fellow wrong thinker, Eric Peters, joins me. Eric, how are you? Well, I'm good. It's just you, me, and Alexa. Oh, how true that is. <laughs> I, you you have an article out uh, about uh, how Big Sister has a name, and it turns out her name is yeah. Alexa. Now, I just I was telling you off the air, my wife and I just got uh, some kind of a unit. I don't know what it is. My son gave it to us. I think it may have been kind of a Father's Day thing. I'm getting used to it, but after reading your article about mm-hmm. Alexa in the car, mm-hmm. I'm starting to have some qualms about this. Talk to me about the experience mm-hmm. you had with uh, a car that you were test driving with all that nifty Alexa technology. Well, I've got the latest generation of the Acura MDX, which is a 2022 model, and it is one of a number of new cars that come from the factory with the Alexa system embedded in it. Previously, people had to go out and get that. Uh, it looks kind of like a tube, I'm assuming, the one that you have, or a hockey puck, and you put the thing on your kitchen table or wherever, and uh, then you can ask it to play music or you can ask it trivia, things of that nature. And the system in the car works the same way that the one in your kitchen does. Now, nominally, it's only supposed to respond to questions that you ask when you prompt it. And I say, uh, I think the word is, uh, hey, Alexa, or Alexa, you're supposed to say that, and that makes it come on. But it is listening to everything that you say in your house. In effect, you're self-bugging. You're self-bugging your house. Now you're self-bugging your car. And this isn't speculative paranoia. It's acknowledged fact. Uh, there have been a number of news stories. You can read about it all you like. You can find, uh, find out about it on uh, Amazon's own page where they admit that not only is Alexa listening, but so are Alexa employees. They actually had human beings listening to what was being transmitted via the Alexa in terms of I guess programming their algorithms and, and fine-tuning uh, fine-tuning the, the things so that it does whatever they want it to do, which on the one hand is a little bit it's innocuous in the sense that they're just trying to I guess data mine you to find out what your preferences are with regard to buying stuff, what you like to eat, where you want to go, so that they can they can pitch products to you. But the flip side of that, which worries me, is that if they can hear what kind of food you like, they can also find what kind of politics you don't like, right? And we can see where this is headed, because we're already living in it. We're living in this wrong, thinkful word, world where if you tweet something or you post something on Facebook or you write something or wherever you put it, and it's out there, and all of a sudden you've been categorized as a non-person, and, and you get deplatformed, demonetized, fired, excluded, pariahized from society. Yeah, I think these are legitimate concerns. And I understand mm-hmm. for some people, oh, you guys are just being paranoid, but... Let's let's look at the way that uh, our culture is headed right now. I think even the the German the East German Stasi would be looking at this and going, mm-hmm. "Oh, it's a bit much." <laughs> you know, at least they understood well, what they were doing wasn't some noble thing. It had to be done secretly by the secret police. You know, well, and they actually had to fight against the population, which was on the alert for the Stasi and which would look for bugs under the ashtray and in their radio sets and wherever else the Stasi agents would try to hide them because they didn't want the government to hear what they were saying among themselves in private. But there's this strange promiscuity 
that has uh, enveloped this country, the West in general, whereby people are, are perfectly okay with revealing intimate details about their private lives, their preferences, their friends, their friendships, their politics. And it all began with the social media stuff um, where people just began to just post it. And now people have been habituized, habituated to it. Uh, and I, I personally am just kind of skeeved out by it. I, I think that there is a place for the private realm, your friends, your family, that shouldn't be out there in public and shouldn't be something that the entire world has access to. No, I, I love in the article how you say, look, you know, uh, these assurances that, hey, this is fine and your privacy is being safe is roughly the equivalent of, you know, accepting a drink from Bill Cosby. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> that right, exactly. Touch. We know what these They've lied to us repeatedly. It's, it, it's, it's, it's another commonality with the whole thing with the Wu flu and Dr. Fauci. At what point do we no longer trust serial liars? Uh, you know, we know perfectly well that they're data mining us. They're selling our data. Uh, God knows what else they're doing. Uh, despite all of their you know, initial denials, once it's uncovered, they're like, well, okay, so what? You got us. Big deal. And apparently most people don't think it's a big deal. Most people seem to think it's okay. And sadly, you know, we get dragged along, those of us wrong thinkers or questioning people who don't like this particularly, um, because it has been so successfully marketed to the populace, it becomes a desirable thing from the standpoint of the corporations to offer it or even just to make it standard. Everybody wants it. So, like, go out and try to find a, a kitchen appliance that doesn't have a computer in it, that doesn't have an LCD display on it. People are so enamored of this technology that that becomes the only thing that is available. And that's, that's kind of the subtle, the subtle riptide effect, um, that's the way I put it, uh, that's carrying all of us along, including those of us who don't particularly want to be carried along. I have to wonder, too, if there isn't a conditioning that comes about like this. For instance, you point out in your article, you know, how does Alexa know, th- you know, to, that when you say her name, you know, she springs to life. Yes, mm-hmm. what can I do for you? If mm-hmm. she's not listening at every moment. And, and with well, that, you, you get used to the idea that whatever I'm saying might be listened to, which means if you have that awareness in the back of your mind, you're not going to behave normally as if you believed you were unobserved. Right, which I think is part of what they want. They want people to be circumscribed as well as promiscuous. You know, they want people who are wrong thinkful like you and I to think about what they're saying. You know, you're long, no longer free in these new cars to just have a conversation because in the back of your mind you're wondering, well, wait a minute, if I say what I'm about to think, what, I, what I'm thinking about saying, somebody else might hear it rather than just the passenger in the car. Maybe I shouldn't say it. Maybe I should wait till we can go walk in the woods or something. I hate to say it, but that's, you know, I've had a number of conversations with friends and family in the last couple of years where one of the conditions was, hey, let's put our cell phones away and go for a walk simply because right. we wanted to be sure that uh, whatever we were talking about, it was nothing subversive, but we just wanted to be able to speak freely. Absolutely. Now, at minimum, too, these systems are tracking where you go. Uh, you know, for example, if, if you ask Alexa in your car, where, you know, uh, where's the best price for gas? And obviously, in order to answer that question, Alexa has to know where you are in relation to the gas station, right? So it's another form of, of tracking you that way. And another aspect of this, and I haven't confirmed this because it's really impossible at this moment to confirm it, but I think that they are, are going to individualize it in a way that's unique, that's different, because it is, after all, an audible technology. You use your voice, and our voices are as unique as our fingerprints. Right. And they can be used as a biometric identifier. 
such that every time you open your mouth, everything that you say can be tied to you specifically as an individual. And that really worries me. That, I find that to be an extremely unsettling prospect. Okay, so give me your thoughts on this. Do, do, we, do we become semi-Luddites and turn our backs on this technology? Or is there a way to use it without bringing the bad side effects along with it? I don't know that there that it's that that whole luddite thing. I'm not anti-technology. I'm anti-tyranny. And when technology right. becomes a tool of tyranny, that's when I don't like technology. And I think there are certainly ways to to do the same things that we've done in the past. There were such things as encyclopedias and dictionaries. There are ways to obtain information um, and more solid information, frankly, than some AI algorithm uh, by asking it. It's fundamentally lazy, isn't it? to just say, hey, Alexa, uh, tell me what the capital of Kathmandu is, rather than simply go and look it up, um, as people used to do. So this, this technology is not necessary to live a modern, intelligent, educated life. It's just another way for people to be lazy, in my opinion. And there's a cost to laziness. And the cost to la- of laziness here is that uh, things about you that you may not want to be known are, are being known to people that you know nothing about and who may not have your best interests at heart. Fair enough. No, I, I think that uh, the hard part is just going to be getting people to think outside of their comfort zone enough to realize, you know, that uh, this is what it's doing. In addition to the music it's playing, in addition to the answers mm-hmm. it's providing, there are some side effects that come along for the ride that you may want to take into consideration. Yeah, and as with so many things, I wish this were opt-in. You know, if you want it, great, just like airbags, just like so many things, electric cars, what have you. If they put it out there and said, look, if you'd like to have this, it's available, you can select it, go ahead. But it's not working that way. What they're doing is just putting it into everything. So effectively, your choice is if you want a new car, you're going to have to have it. Uh, And your only other choice is to not have a new car, to have an older car. And, of course, that puts you in the position of having to keep and maintain an older vehicle. And as the years go by, that gets harder and harder to do unless you're extremely handy with a wrench and a welder and can keep an old car going like they do in Cuba for, you know, 30 or 40 years. No, that's a good point. We've got to take a quick break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. I would encourage you to check out his website for yourself. Take the time to read the articles. Pay attention, too, to the uh, comments that follow because he's got some really, really smart readers, and I always learn something every time I uh, check out the comments as well. We will be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Eric, uh, we just uh, just came through the Independence Day weekend. Yep. And uh, I noticed that uh, I, I look forward to this. Years ago, you had written something about what exactly are we celebrating? And I have to say, yep. it was hard to read because you were, were pretty blunt, but it was one of the best things I've read on the subject. And now every year, my thoughts turn to what exactly are we celebrating? Mm-hmm. And you had a recent column about uh, how whatever it is, we hardly hear the word independence any longer, mm-hmm. do we? 
Yeah, we don't. And let's discuss that wrong thinkful word. I think it's quite telling that for the most part, when people refer to the holiday, they speak of the 4th of July, which is the date, of course. But what were we celebrating? Uh, we were celebrating independence from Great Britain. And independence is another way of saying seceding, secession, departing uh, from a uh, either on an individual level or on a societal level from a situation that's just no longer agreeable to one of the parties. In other words, I don't wish to be forcibly connected to you any longer. It's analogous to a divorce. You know, a point comes uh, in the marriage where you can't work it out anymore, you, you don't get along, you have divergent interests, and so you get divorced. It's not a happy thing, but sometimes it's a necessary thing. And just as in human relationships on an individual level, so also societal relationships, that was the whole premise of what styled the American Revolution, which is another inaccurate word because the american colonies were not seeking to change the government of the british empire they were not attempting to depose the king and replace a parliament with a congress they simply wanted to depart from the british empire to secede that her heretical wrong thinkful word from the british empire and that is what we were celebrating on the fourth of july and americans have lost sight of that no, I, I agree. And yet I think about uh, the, a couple of comments made by uh, Joe Biden just within the last couple of weeks about, well, you can't stand up and take on your government unless you have F-15s and nukes. And I think, yeah, OK, he, he could use a little uh, refresher course in, in what uh, what happened, you know, in the Declaration of Independence and and why it may still be relevant today. Well, he speaks like the thug that he is, and it's not so much the mechanics of the fight that are issue at issue. It's the question of whether it is uh, morally correct, morally right, for individuals who don't get along to just simply part. You know, if, if you if you have, let's say, a friend, and even if it's a friend of long standing, and for one reason or another, uh, something arises between you that makes it impossible for you to continue your friendship. You don't shackle yourself to that person, and you don't beat that person over the head. You simply agree to disagree and go your separate ways, right? Absolutely. And that, and that scales with countries as well. We are at the same point, at the same fork in the road right now in this country. We have incredibly divergent interests and worldviews and attitudes about how everything from the family to the community to the nation ought to be structured and governed, and yet we're all sort of consolidated and centralized and coerced into this one-size-fits-all box that is run by an authoritarian clique in D.C., literally a few hundred people, a few hundred people, Congress, the president, and so on, who dictate, essentially, to 330-something million people. It's absolutely crazy. No, I, I agree. And yet, for you and I to talk about things like secession or, you know, going our separate ways, we would be seen and portrayed as the crazy ones by a majority of people in society. How did we lose our well, grip of what, of what it once meant to be a self-governing people? Well, through conditioning and also through the slaughter of more than half a million Americans in the War of 1861-1865, which was not a civil war. The South was not attempting to conquer the North. The South did not want to uh, take over the federal government. The South simply decided that... We can no longer exist peacefully within this union because we are at odds with the North. We have a different worldview. We have a different attitude about the role of government. So, therefore, we wish to go our separate way in peace. And Lincoln and the Republicans in the North could not abide that. And at Bayonet Point, they mass-murdered uh, half a million people uh, to, to make the point 
that, no, you can't leave. You're going to be chained to us, and thereby uh, completely destroyed the whole concept of consent of the government. Uh, and it's ironic that Lincoln talked to Gettysburg about the government uh, of the people, by the people, for the people, except, of course, for the South. Right. I, I've become a fan of Lysander Spooner, who was yeah. a, a, an attorney and an abolitionist, but nonetheless, he was also a very clear thinker. And his his take was, look, if you're yeah. gonna if you're gonna force men to live under a government they do not want, how is that any different from slavery? Right, and it's important to point out, uh, Spooner was one of the very first um, libertarian thinkers and writers. And as you say, he was a fervent abolitionist, and good on him for that. And at the same time, he loathed and despised Abraham Lincoln and the Republicans of the period, whom he regarded rightly as uh, tyrannous, and not only uh, with respect to the South, but also with respect to slaves. Uh, he, he knew, because Lincoln said it, it wasn't, it wasn't hidden, that Lincoln was a virulent racist and cared nothing about black Americans. What he cared about was, was enslaving all Americans. Well, we certainly seem to be approaching a, a point where I'm thinking separation may be the, the better way to go. Now, this is concerning to people on the conservative side of the spectrum as well as to those on the, the, the left side of the spectrum. But uh, we, we, I, I'm seeing talk, and this is coming from both sides, Eric, of people saying you can't reason. For instance, they'll say you can't reason with these leftists. Boy, yeah. we're just going to have to we're going to have to root them out and get rid of them. And I hear the same thing from the political left. These people who believe that there may have been election fraud or these mm-hmm. these Trumpers, we've got to just either put them in camps or we've got to do away with them. I don't mm-hmm. think they'll ever stop. I mean, people are using genocidal language, and I don't even think yes, they, they, they are. realize well, it. Well, that's what comes. That's what comes of the violence of our times, which um, isn't so much overt right now. Um, as simply the the sea that we swim in. You know, you're you're no longer free really to do much. You're told what to do. Uh, I do think there is a big difference between the right and the left, however, or at least between conservatives and leftists, in that I believe, for the most part, that most conservatives would be quite content to leave liberals and leftists alone. Um, you know, you go go do what you want to do, just leave us out of it. Whereas, per what Lenin said, uh, the left says you may not be interested in government, but government is interested in you. The left cannot exist without the without the um, the milk cow. We, the people, you know, who work and produce and and create all of the things that make liberalism possible, which liberalism is simply the taking from you and the giving to him, uh, with the middleman being the leftist who gets the power out of that whole transaction. They know they need us. That's why, for example, California imposes this exit tax on people who leave California and tries to continue to collect uh, state taxes, even from expats who move to other states, because they need the money, they need the power. That's the real rub here. You know, I think most of us on our side, we're peaceable people. We don't want anything from them. We, we just, you do your thing, we'll do our thing, leave us be. And that's a really wonderful, peaceful attitude, in my opinion. But there is a side, the other side, that absolutely will not abide that. And that, that worries me, because there is ultimately no way to deal with people who have that mindset, who will not leave you alone, except, unfortunately, through force and violence at the end of the day. Well, I'm glad there are clear thinkers like yourself who are keeping tabs on this and and offering an alternative point of view, although it it probably feels like uh, you're fighting a pretty uphill battle at this point. Well, yes and no. I think it's important for all of us on our side of the fence to bear in mind that what we hear uh, on the radio and what what we see on the mainstream corporate press and mainstream corporate websites and so on does not necessarily reflect uh, the majority of the population. 
this again is is a sort of an inbred small cabal of of corporate entities that that control all of this and and produce the same message. Now they they produce it in a very loud way and in a way that conveys the impression that that's what everybody thinks. I don't think that's the case. I think there's still a lot of right-thinkful Americans in this country, and it's important for them to not lose heart and not give up the fight, certainly not before it's lost. And I don't mean a physical fight. I mean a fight of ideas and just a fight of standing up and making your voice heard. Hear, hear. My guest has been Eric Peters from epautos.com. Check out his website. Support his sponsors. Send him some love. Eric, I appreciate you dropping by each week and sharing your thoughts on the passing scene. Always. Happy to. Thank you, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by phenomenal sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, also Pure-Light.com, HSLAmmo.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I have links to every one of these sponsors in the show notes, which you'll find at TheBrianHydeShow.com. Let's, uh, let's talk about how... Isn't it interesting that everything that came before us is now supposed to be regarded as racist or superstitious or just flat out wrong? Everything. I mean, it's it's uncanny. Anything that uh, that contributed to the to the growth or the stability of American society is is being considered, you know, fit for the trash heap. We've got to throw it away. We've got to start new. Now, to me, that sounds more like the ambitions of people who really want to be in control. And hopefully that doesn't make me sound too conspiratorial to point that out. But, you know, why else throw away everything? You mean all those billions of minds, all those billions of man hours that came before us, working on, thinking about, applying solutions, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, to the various problems that have been part of human nature for all these years of human history, at least recorded human history. That's all garbage. All of it needs to go. Yeah, there's nothing opportunistic about that, right? Hmm. In particular, I was thinking about a quote that I saw the other day that talked about how the Enlightenment paved the way for America's founders to take the moral stand that they did for personal rights, for private property, for independence, for self-governance. Sheldon Richmond has some great historical perspective on why the Enlightenment is not just a bunch of crazy stuff that a bunch of old dead white guys, some of whom may have owned slaves, came up with. He makes a case that uh, their, their thinking, the Enlightenment thinkers, paved the way for greater freedom for more of humanity than had ever been known to that point. I think, he has, uh, I think he has a pretty good case here. Sheldon Richmond says, The libertarian philosophy is embedded in Enlightenment liberalism. Now, this is clearly seen in his commitment to free inquiry, which is reason, and free speech, the full realization of which, he argues, requires complete respect for individual rights, including property rights. 
Now, unfortunately, we live at a time when those values are increasingly under assault from a variety of intellectuals and activists, despite political and cultural differences among themselves. He says, we hear prominent people ask, and it's really an assertion disguised as a question, whether free inquiry and free speech are really all they've been cracked up to be in light of the American condition. That seems to be a change even from the recent past when a question like that would only come from the most authoritarian fringes of the left and right. Sheldon Richmond says, advocates of individual liberty and the rich patterns of cooperation that liberty generates have reason to worry. Nothing good would be gained from restrictions on those Enlightenment values, regardless of whether the restrictions came from the government or private sources. Nothing good at all. He says, whatever one fears about the state of American culture, it's difficult to see how stifling inquiry and speech could improve matters. Whether one is a left collectivist who believes Enlightenment values lock in white male supremacy, or a right collectivist who believes that those values have allowed the left to control the culture's commanding heights, the crushing of true liberalism can only lead to disaster eventually for everyone. Now, Sheldon Richmond says you don't need to be a libertarian to see the point. And fortunately, we see non-libertarians all around the political, the political spectrum expressing dismay about the new disparagement of freewheeling inquiry and uninhibited expression of its findings. He says this is not rocket science. Squelching speech does not make alleged bad thoughts go away. On the contrary, it gives them an illusion of legitimacy they never would have achieved in open discussion. When a subject becomes taboo, even good faith people may reasonably ask, what are the self-appointed censors so scared of? Does the forbidden claim have merit that I've overlooked? How does that help the censors beat back ideas? By the way, just as a personal aside, that's that's one of the reasons I've come to embrace criticism, especially public criticism of uh, me, of my show, of my point of view. There was a time where it was like, oh no, someone's saying bad things about me. Now, I won't say that I welcome it, but I also see it as more of an opportunity than not. Because when someone starts railing on about what a monster Hyde is and uh, what a radical he is, some people out there are going to tune in just to see for themselves. They want to see, um, is he really as bad as what I've heard? And I feel pretty confident those people who take the time to actually listen, they may still not agree with me, and that's fine. But at least they're going to recognize, hey, this actually sounds like a pretty nice guy, even if he's misguided or you know something to that effect. See, the value of the open competitive marketplace of ideas, says Sheldon Richmond, is so obvious that it ought not require repeating. We learn through the contest among ideas. And the way to defeat an assertion is not to suppress it, but to rebut it. No idea is so dangerous that it has to be banned from the marketplace. A free society cannot tolerate thought police, whether they're political or private. Mr. Zuckerberg, we're looking your direction. So to cherish the intellectual marketplace, he says, one need only realize that even someone who is thoroughly wrong about a particular matter or event, and perhaps even ill-intentioned, could contribute to our knowledge by stumbling on an overlooked truth. We've just never known who might be the one to set the record straight in some way. By the way, he says the leftist Norman Finkelstein has admirably made this point many times. 
Moreover, he says it's important that the actual or the intellectual marketplace, like the commercial marketplace, and for the same reasons, not be rigged by the state in any way. In other words, all intellectual products should have to compete in a just, that is, rights-respecting arena. Forces to be barred, but that's all that needs barring. Now, may the best ideas win. Now, this doesn't mean the common-sense rules of respect needn't be observed or those who violate the rules should never be called to account. But it does mean that toleration is also a virtue when directed at offenders. We are rightly uncomfortable when people lose their livelihoods for saying the wrong thing in the wrong way. It's difficult to confine this kind of punishment to only the worst offenders. Boomerangs have a way of coming back at you. So he says, does an open marketplace guarantee that the truth always wins right away? Of course not. But it's the best chance we have of rooting out error in the shortest time. The market certainly beats any imaginable alternative, which would have to be one form or another of authoritarianism. No thank you. It's in the nature of ideas, as with all tools, that they can be used for good or ill. Stifling discussion because bad people may capitalize on fact can hardly be grounds for shutting down the intellectual marketplace. In fact, he says one can think of no sure example of the cure being worse than the alleged disease. And so he says it's time for all true liberals. Now he's talking classical liberals. Whatever their differences, unite to defend free inquiry and free speech. Here, here. I completely agree. Although it's hard to do, right? It's a little bit scary, especially when someone is, you know, looking over every word you say and every word I say, looking for a reason to tear us down. Still got to speak the truth. Got to be that one brave enough to shine the light into the darkness. I trust you on matters like this. By the way, have you ever noticed how many people are now claiming a right to some portion of your time and energy? I want to segue into an article here. This is from uh, Kent McManagle, published on everything-voluntary.com. It's titled, You're Only Responsible for Yourself. This should be common sense, but I want you to hear a few of the observations Kent McManagle makes here. He says, you are responsible for yourself. No one else can be as responsible for yourself as you are. Nor can you ever be completely responsible for anyone but yourself. Now, he does say, please do your best in the case of babies and others who are totally helpless, though. So this is this is not Ayn Rand. <laughs> you know, sorry, you're on your own, Junior. Uh, kind of uh, tough love here. He says, when your own responsibility fails, and all of us have been there, you can ask others for help. Friends, family, and charity are there to fill the gap when you fail to be as responsible as you should have been. And this non-consensual institution of political government, or the non-consensual institution of political government, is also there for you to lean on. But, he warns, this creates more irresponsibility. Now, I've got to put the brakes on here real quick because we are coming up on our break here. But we'll come back. We'll talk about Ken McManigal's article, You're Only Responsible for Yourself. I know it's something you probably understand. I think Kent just has a knack of putting it so well that uh, I wanted to share it with you. So maybe you can uh, internalize this as, you know, philosophical ammo, if you will, for further discussions down the road. We'll be back right after these messages.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article here from Ken McManigal. And you're only responsible for yourself. Now, this is something that might take some people by surprise. In fact, it may actually make some people mad. Well, no, I'm responsible for everything. I am my brother's keeper. And I get it. There's, there's a lot of people who, you know, take that I am my brother's keeper so seriously that they begin, they begin to, uh, you know, overkeep their brother. But let's talk about that personal responsibility. When your responsibility fails, and, and Kent says sometimes it happens to all of us, you can always ask others for help. Family, friends, charity should be there to fill the gap when you fail to be as responsible as you should have been. But he also warns that this non-consensual institution of political government is there for you to lean on, but if you do so, that just creates more irresponsibility. He says if you won't be responsible, no one else can force it on you. Not governments and their legislation, nor churches and their morals. No matter how hard they try, they're going to fail. It's up to you. And he says, while you're responsible for everything you do, some people will try to convince you of a responsibility to do things that aren't your responsibility. This is one of the biggest tricks government plays on you. This kind of person will make up some imaginary responsibility, one that advances their agenda at your expense, and then try to convince you it's real. They'll try to shame you for not doing what they want. Among the false responsibilities that will be imposed on you is to pay your fair share in taxes for things you don't want and probably don't need. Just because someone else imagines it's a good idea. You'll be told to follow illegitimate orders. To harm someone or which will harm someone. And if you don't, you'll be called irresponsible. A fake social contract is a great weapon to use to shut down rational thought and create imaginary responsibilities out of thin air. So you are responsible for not violating the life, liberty, or property of any other person. All your real responsibilities grow from this root. And Kent McManigal says you're responsible for supporting yourself because if you don't, someone else may be forced to support you against their will, and that violates their property rights. He says you're responsible for keeping your nose out of other people's business, as long as they aren't harming anyone, because to do otherwise violates their liberty. So as long as you have a conscience and can see the consequences of your actions, you'll know when you're being responsible and when you aren't. But above all, he says, don't violate others. That's, this is the foundation of responsibility. Don't violate other people. Anything less is irresponsible. I really like this. I just think, I think Kent has the, the right idea, and he has the ability to just put it into terms that are very easily understood. By the way, I saw a t-shirt yesterday that I don't know if I will get it or not. It's, it, I agree with the sentiment. I'm just trying to envision the place where, where such a t-shirt would come in handy. But you know how he talks about others try to make it your responsibility. Well, the social contract requires that you do this or you do that. Well, the t-shirt says, look, I'm not questioning your authority. I am denying its existence. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I like that. I like that enough. I probably would actually spring for such a shirt. All right. Got to shift gears here. We got one more thing to cover here. What does the opposite of personal responsibility look like? Well, 
Jeff Minnick says it probably looks a lot like uh, what uh, we see in the behavior of our politicians. In fact, Jeff Minnick reminds us that the words deny thyself are not in a politician's vocabulary. He says Joe Biden calls himself a devout Catholic. To which Jeff Minnick says, sorry, Joe, but your claim is bogus and your hypocrisy rank, as can be seen in the whole recent communion controversy. He says that Catholic bishops shouldn't have to deny Joe Biden communion because of his support for abortion, which the church considers a grave sin, is a point correctly made by Larry O'Connor in I deny myself communion. So should Joe Biden. O'Connor, who remarried without having his previous marriage annulled by the church, attends Mass on Sundays, but quite rightly, never receives communion. To do so would be to add sacrilege to his other sins. Now, Jeff Minnick says Joe Biden commits this same sacrilege every time he receives the Eucharist. Certainly, the bishops have the right and even the obligation to forbid communion to anyone who is guilty of a grave sin and remains unrepentant, particularly a public figure setting a poor example for others. As O'Connor points out, however, Joe Biden should deny himself communion. Now, I got to I got to do a quick pause here for just a moment. Um, for people who don't attend church, I'm just going to try to give you the simple explanation because this this plays out in in my faith system as well. Um, the the Eucharist, communion, sacrament, you know the 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 memory of the Last Supper, essentially, is something that uh, Christian believers take very, very seriously. And it's supposed to be uh, an outward act of affirmation that, yep, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to take his name on me, I'm going to remember him in everything that I do, and you know, I'm going to be worthy of being a follower of his. Which means, if, if you're guilty of some sin, not perfect, but if you've, if you've done something that is considered, you know, outright sin. You're supposed to weigh your heart and not unworthily participate in communion, sacrament, etc. So this is why some are saying, look, Joe Biden should be denying himself communion. But, you know, I guess things are different with how politicians think. And I'm trying really not, really hard not to throw the word sociopath in here, but it's rattling around my mind pretty hard right now because I think some of the symptoms are, are quite the same. Nonetheless, reading O'Connor's article, says Jeff Minnick, makes me think of self-denial in a more general way. Many of us are not particularly adept at self-denial. Our enormous levels of debt, both in our government and in our private sector, reveal our inability to put the brakes on our spending. Our national epidemic of obesity demonstrates our inability to eat healthy foods in moderate amounts. Our divorce rates stem from several causes, but surely a cornerstone of these broken marriages is the inability to control personal desires. Our obsession with all things sexual, pornography, hooking up, casual sex, also reflects our lack of self-control. So, coupled with this diminished practice of self-denial is our shrunken sense of responsibility. An example of this with national ramifications could be found in the border crisis. Jeff Minnick says Joe Biden and his government cooked up this mess, and not until recently did Biden send Vice President Kamala Harris to the border for a first-hand look at the horrendous damage done to our country by their policies. 
It's because neither wants to be seen as having created this catastrophe, even though one of their fellow Democrats admits the current administration's approach to the border creates a weak image for the party. Jeff Minnick says we see this same irresponsibility in our everyday lives. We lie to a best friend, she discovers the lie, and we try to cover our tracks by blaming circumstances or other people. Maybe we bollocks a project at work and blame it on an underling. Or we hurt our spouse with wicked and undeserved remarks and blame our cruelty on a hard day. In many ways, he says, entitlement is a form of irresponsibility. We've endured a long week at the office and tell ourselves we deserve that six-pack of beer. We may owe a minor fortune in credit card bills, but we need that vacation at the beach. On a national level, our government decides certain groups are entitled to special treatment and favors. He says, from this refusal to take charge of our lives and accept the consequences of our actions comes victimhood, that cancer on today's culture. These days, it seems many Americans revel in being victims, wounded by racism, by misogyny, by poverty. Given the freedoms and prosperity of our society, he says it should astound us, all of us, how so many men and women have claimed to be sufferers of oppression who then band together to demand even more rights without ever recognizing the accompanying responsibilities those rights demand. Of course, plenty of people do practice self-denial. All of us can surely think of people, young and old, who daily sacrifice themselves for their family, friends, and other loved ones. The hard-charging attorney who gives all his support to his growing family, who hits the road, the contractor who hits the road by dawn to do the same, the 60-year-old daughter who cares for her mother with Alzheimer's, the nurse who goes above and beyond the call of duty when treating her patients. In one way or another, these noble souls set the self aside and do the right thing. They're the glue holding society together. Yet how rarely we celebrate them. Today's public figures maintain they know what's best for the rest of us, yet many of them are like Joe Biden, pompous hypocrites who know little to nothing about self-denial. Let's resolve to be better people than so many of those running our government or dictating to to our culture. Let's serve others rather than focus on our own desires. Let's seek the good for our family, friends, even strangers. Jeff Minnick says, Oscar Wilde once said, we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. And to that, Jeff Minnick says, let's be the ones looking at the stars. I think he's right, by the way, but I also understand that's a tough sell in a society that has been told that the word no is a terrible word. We should have less no in our lives and more of whatever it is we want at the moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show.